G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you in our last podcast episode for the year. Absolutely, yeah. What a what a year it has been. But as you say, last one for the year, and looking forward to a little bit of a break over summer and an opportunity to watch some cricket. And we thought we'd get this one more podcast in before Christmas, so that uh, we can uh, leave you all for the for the Christmas break. And uh, we'll be back, I think, around uh, mid January when we're talking about Dad. Yeah, look forward to that as well. But yeah, nice to have a bit of a break. And as you say, cricket's going to be part of it. Absolutely. And before we do go, we do have a fascinating podcast episode today. It's something that oh, I know I can speak for myself and say that I've very much enjoyed looking into this stuff this week, Dad. And, and we've called today's episode Regulating Responses to Threat. So do you want to just give us a bit of a brief rundown? What are we going to be talking about today? Yes, well, it's certainly a fascinating topic that I've learnt more about recently along with a number of colleagues when we watched a workshop by Stephen Porges, a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and he presented a wonderful workshop at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference talking about how animals and mammals and humans, of course, have developed different kind of reactions to threat or danger that have developed through evolution. And if we understand these biologically based reactions, such as a fight-flight response, then it helps us make sense of how we might respond in a whole range of situations where we might be relatively safe or unsafe or facing some kind of danger or indeed if we're in a life-threatening situation because this will tend to bring different reactions out of us fairly automatically. And if we can understand the kind of reactions that we have and how they relate to each other, that can give us a little bit more, not just understanding, but maybe a bit more influence in how we respond to threatening situations in future. Well, it is one of those topics that I must admit, when you first told me about it and, you know, even looking at some of the names and stuff involved, I'm thinking, gee, this is, this is a complicated one to get my head around. But I think at the same time, once you go through it and you start to understand it a little bit more, you realise that, yeah, it does make a lot more sense. And it's one of those things that, and you know, I'm not a biologist, Dad, but one of the things I find interesting about biology is, is you look at the way that these systems work and it's almost like the building blocks which come together and, it, it, as you say, the whole thing seems to make a lot more sense I think once you break it down into its it's almost smaller parts. Yeah well it's quite wondrous about how our minds and bodies can sometimes respond automatically in a particular situation and when we understand some of the wondrousness of that some of the magic of that some of the design of that it also helps understand maybe when things go a bit wrong like for example we freeze in a situation when we look back and think oh gosh I wish I didn't freeze when I was in that situation but when we can relate it to a life-saving reaction at times that's developed through evolution when we relate it to the accumulated experience of I suppose billions of animals that have lived up until now and then we've inherited this system to try and help deal with threat and danger in the most effective kind of way if we understand that then we can see how it helps, but also how sometimes it might get a bit out of balance or be overreactive or lead us down an unhelpful path, even though it's really trying to do the best thing for us to help us survive and help our species survive. 
And I think talking about it in terms of survivability is an interesting thing because one of the things that stood out to me was just the relevance of some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today in terms of, you know, threat is such a broad term in some ways. Is it, you know, physical threat? Is it more of an emotional thing? And the interesting thing about this is how it seems to relate to all of those things at once. It literally is a, a system responding to threat rather than, for example, physical danger versus, you know, say like psychological threat sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, very much looking forward to uh, learning a little bit more about it with you today. Yes, and when you mentioned about threats, how that often shows up, for example, in a psychology practice when people seek help with therapy, people might be looking for help with a phobic reaction, or people might look for help with post-traumatic stress, or even worry and general anxiety, how that might come up, or social anxiety, how that might come up in different ways. So there are a range of ways that threat might manifest itself, but, well, nearly all of us around the world can relate to the idea of the threat posed by the pandemic. And we'll talk about this later on too, understanding some of our reactions to the pandemic and even vaccines, what our attitude or approach is to that, how we deal with lockdowns, this is partly related to our evolutionary responses to threat and danger. And I think the thing about that is that you, you've touched on it as well in terms of it being automatic. You know, these are systems that are inbuilt within us and it's not necessarily always conscious what we are doing to respond to threat in certain situations, but... You know, it doesn't change the fact that we are going to behave in a certain way. And, and like many things, I think once you bring some awareness to the, our systems for threat in this situation, but once you bring some awareness to something, it does give you a little bit more control to even recognise here or there where certain parts are having a little bit more of an influence or less of an influence or, or maybe some certain things that we can focus on to maybe divert our, our attention away from, from where it is heading at that stage. So it'll be good to, uh, yeah, later on get onto some of the practicalities of what we can do. But Dad, just to take a bit of a, a broad overview now, mentioned it's an automatic system and I believe it's part of the autonomic nervous system. So just broadly, what is the autonomic nervous system? Okay, well, our autonomic nervous system helps us do a number of things automatically that basically help our growth, our restoration, our health more generally. So that means it regulates things like our heart rate, our breathing, digestion, sexual functioning, as well as our response to threat and danger. So these things are happening automatically in the background. So people will have heard about our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Our sympathetic system can mobilise us, whereas our parasympathetic system can help calm us, for example, through resting and digesting. And so when we're functioning in a positive way and we're not facing any kind of threat or danger, then our sympathetic nervous system, it helps us be energised or enthusiastic or even exuberant. Like if we're in a very playful mood, that's partly our sympathetic nervous system mobilising us. Whereas if we're looking to rest or calm down, then our parasympathetic nervous system will tend to hold sway. So this is what's happening when things are functioning well. It helps us grow and restore. But these systems also have an important role to play with stress or danger when we're facing threat. And that's what we'll be describing about how there are three different components to the threat response in the autonomic nervous system. And if we understand how these different systems operate, they operate in a hierarchy 
depending according to when they evolved. So some are more sophisticated and some are less sophisticated, but they each have a role to play these three different reactions within the autonomic nervous system. And so it is that sort of thing where, you know, it can get a little bit complicated with, you know, parasympathetic, sympathetic, like, you know, what do these things mean to the, uh, to the uninitiated like myself, Dad? But I suppose just even in like super simple terms, like it seems to me that basically it's the system in the body that's responsible for all the things that we don't necessarily want to do consciously. You know, if we, if we had to breathe all the time in terms of, right, breathe in and breathe out, and then at the same time you're looking consciously out for threat, at the same time you're having to make sure that your heart rate is the right, like you just simply couldn't pull all these things off so it seems to me that you know it's these systems in the body that are responsible for you know taking care of all of the stuff that basically shouldn't be front of mind or that if it was too front of mind it would take us away from the things that we need to focus on at that time but what we're talking about today is almost like when the balance of those things can get a little bit out of whack out of balance it's almost like they each have a bit of a role to play but there can be certain things that happen that maybe upset that balance where maybe some of them overcompensate for other things and and because it's all automatic it's not necessarily happening consciously or something it feels like we have a whole lot of control over but I think it seems that when we break all this sort of stuff down you realize that it it makes sense how some of this stuff works and maybe once we do understand it there are certain things that we can do to I suppose not fall into that trap of having these systems overcompensate and try and almost work over the top of each other. Yes, you described that well, that automatic nature. And one of the most important things that we can do automatically is kind of scan our environment for seeing if we're under some kind of threat. Is it that there's maybe an animal, a predator in the background with a low growling sound that we should pick up on? Is it that we see a smoking mountain and that maybe seems a bit strange, so there might be something wrong with that? Is it that we hear something rustling in the leaves that gives us a sense that that might not just be the breeze, it might be some kind of predator nearby? Now, the thing is, we're automatically scanning for threat the whole time using the automatic kind of system, and we call this neuroception, this scanning the environment for danger. So we're automatically checking, am I safe? Or am I in some kind of danger? Or even is there some kind of life threat involved? Because people will find if there is a life threat involved, they will have reacted automatically even before they've registered the threat. For example, someone might hit the deck as soon as there's a loud sound, but it might not be a bomb going off, it might be a car backfiring or something like that. So people might have an automatic response or automatically freeze in a certain situation before they've even detected what the particular danger might be. It's this automatic aspect of it where we're checking on danger the whole time, but also checking whether we're safe, in which case we can be calmer and grow and rest and restore. Well, it is an interesting one, those examples, I suppose, of how this plays out. And, you know, as you're describing that there, it comes to mind for me, you know, as you're almost walking around a corner and you don't recognise there's someone coming the other way and you almost, before you've really kind of seen them and realised what's happening, you've just kind of stopped and gone, <gasps> and it's sort of like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. It's this almost involuntary reaction sort of thing. Or even, you know, I remember, you know, being younger and uh, playing a game of cricket and, you know, you'd, Every so often you'd absolutely middle one and then realise that is going straight for a window. And so you'd sort of just be doing this weird kind of jumpy thing. Well, it sort of didn't mean it. You're just kind of jumping on the spot and it's almost as if you're kind of getting ready to run off. You know, you'd, 
someone like yourself or <laughs> mum was ready to come out. So it was almost like preparing yourself to kind of be mobilised in this situation. So it's interesting hearing you describe that because, yeah, I can certainly think of times where you kind of go like, you know, what was that? Or, you know, even, you know, you might see a car coming in a certain direction and, and you freeze when, you know, it might actually be more beneficial to you to actually move out of the way sort of thing. So it is interesting how this plays out. Yes, and so just like you're saying, the different reactions that we can have and they occur in a certain kind of order of priority. But to understand this, it helps to understand how these systems developed over time. So the first thing I'll mention is the first kind of reaction that developed through evolution with the autonomic nervous system was the freeze-submit reaction. This is when, for example, an animal suddenly senses something in the distance and it freezes immediately, or even in a more dire situation, a mouse might find itself in the mouth of a cat and will immediately play dead, so to speak, or submit. Now, these are situations where the animal is immobilised. Their immobilisation responses, so the freeze response, actually helps animals survive because if there's a predator that suddenly comes within its environment, by freezing, the animal is less likely to be seen. But the advantages of a submit response is either the animal plays dead, like plays possum, and live meat is more appealing to a predator than dead meat, so it might help a predator leave the animal alone if it's playing dead. Or the other thing is if the animal's about to be eaten, then it's kind of like an anaesthetisation response. So in a sense, the animal's almost like the equivalent of a state of shock and might not be registering the distress at that stage in the same way. Now the thing is, these freeze-submit responses developed about 500 million years ago with the development of what's called the dorsal vagus nerve. And so it was an evolutionary development that helped animals have this freeze-submit response that has some benefits for evolution. And so that is where, you know, I remember the first time I heard dorsal vagus, oh, geez, what what are all these terms and all this sort of stuff? But I think, like, vagus means wanderer, or it comes from the term the wanderer, like, you know, Las Vegas, the wanderers. But I believe it, yeah, refers to the almost the wandering nerve, the biggest nerve in our body. And I believe dorsal means back, so essentially it just means back of the nerve for that one. But the, the interesting thing about that for me is that, you know, as you say, I think it was about 500 million years ago that we developed this trait. And, you know, for example, now, if you see a snake, the thing that you're told to do is to stay as silent and as still as possible so that the snake can't see you. Well, that's that response in action. And, you know, that is within all of us as well. So it is interesting to, yeah, I suppose, recognise that even, you know, reptiles still still clearly rely on that a lot more than we do. Yes, and so that can happen in a certain situation now, like it might be social anxiety. Someone might be getting up to speak in front of a class or something like that and suddenly freeze and might think, oh, how stupid of me, like, why aren't I saying anything? Or someone might be about to get an injection and they might freeze in a reaction like that. And so the person might think, oh, how silly of me. Well, not really. It was actually 500 million years ago this response was partly developed to help people survive. It's part of a survival response. And when people understand that, it can make a difference, for example, if someone was held up at gunpoint and they didn't do anything to protect themselves or if someone was sexually assaulted, for example, a person might feel guilty or ashamed thinking, hey, wait a minute, but I didn't fight off the attacker. But that's this 
response to life threat kicking in automatically, it's designed actually to help humans and animals survive. And one other benefit of this through evolution is if animals did freeze in that particular way, like for example, reptiles could hold their breath longer underwater, even up to a couple of hours. So it actually could help survival that way as well. So that's where these biological reactions can kick in. It also includes fainting at the sight of blood. If people faint, that's part of that submit response. So it's just understanding that in that first level of hierarchy of survival reactions or response to threat or danger reactions, it's the freeze-submit response. Well, it is fascinating to hear it put like that. And it's worth looking at the second system then, which I believe sits on top of the the freeze-submit response in the hierarchy. And that's the the fight-flight response. It seems to me, Dad, that many existing stress management techniques deal with mainly this second system in terms of, you know, even fight and flight. Quite often we hear stress associated with fight and flight and anxiety and all this sort of stuff. So how does the fight and flight response relate to our, yes, systems of stress? Okay, well, rather than immobilization response, this is a mobilization response. So we can understand that, for example, if someone comes under attack, whether it be by an animal or someone else with a spear, it might make sense to try and either run away, if you can, if you've got time, or otherwise fight back or at least defend yourself as forcefully as you can. Now, that's the sympathetic nervous system, which developed about 400 million years ago. That involves the release of cortisol and other chemicals which help mobilise us to react in that way. So that's a more obvious kind of response to threat, some of its advantages. And so many people would think of anxiety reactions as being fight-flight reactions, which they often are. But to have a fuller understanding, such as when people freeze with a phobic reaction, it's fight-flight-freeze-submit. But it's just understanding that these operate in a different kind of hierarchy. In the first instance, to be mobilised might be even more helpful But that was the downside of an immobilisation response. You're not actually effectively fighting off an attacker. So hence, there was a real advantage through evolution of developing the fight-flight alternatives. And you can see there where if someone was experiencing an extensive amount of fight-flight, like how tough it would be to relax. Because biologically, it's almost like your your body's not letting you relax because, you know, if if threat could be there at any time, you've got to, you know, potentially get up and either fight or get up and flee. Even stuff like your your muscles, I think, would, you know, not relax or they'd be clenched in a way that's always ready to move. Yes, and actually, these systems can be activated too often. For example, if we go back to the freeze-submit response... Well, that again relates to the dorsal vagus nerve, which connects the brain to different parts of the body below the diaphragm, so around the gut. But if that's stimulated too much, then you can get gut problems, different kinds of physical problems which become problematic over time. And the same kind of thing if our sympathetic response happens too often, the fight-flight kind of reaction, like for example if we're too driven at work or otherwise feeling overcome with worry very often, like these different kind of anxiety reactions as well, then that can affect, for example, our heart health, our gut health, a range of other reactions. So that's where it's an advantage not to have these systems too overactive too frequently. And Dad, looking at the third system now, now this is where I think it, it really does start to get quite interesting. But 
it's called the social engagement system. So could you tell us a little bit about the social engagement system and how that relates to stress? Okay, now the social engagement system developed around 220 million years ago, and this was to help mammals rear their young. As Stephen Poor just described, before then, say, reptiles could just lay eggs and then wander off kind of thing, whereas for mammals to raise their young, which was over a period of time, you would rely on, if you like, a range of other animals in a group to help provide protection and safety for the young. So therefore, there needed to be a way of connecting and bonding these animals, not just a, a parent to their baby, but others within a group or a tribe. And so this social engagement system was based on a communication response, sometimes called tend and befriend, as opposed to rest and digest, a nurturing kind of system. So this evolved out of the development of the ventral vagus nerve. So another branch of the vagus nerve, which connects the brain to various muscles around the mouth, the face, the ear, for example, larynx and pharynx, so how to vocalise and make noises, and also certain kinds of facial gestures to engage others in the group. So this social engagement system involves things like listening, tone of voice, smiling, comforting kind of gestures, gestures that convey, if you like, a peaceful, supportive kind of attitude. So that could include things like cuddling or touch with the release of oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, for example. So the thing is, that is the most sophisticated system. That involves more regulation than the other systems. For example, it can comfort quite quickly and then you can move on to do something else. So it's sometimes said that the ventral vagal system can act like a break. It can help settle us or modulate our reactions. And then soon after, we can get on with things after words of comfort or support from someone else or a degree of reassurance or collaboration. Whereas if we've gone into a freeze-submit response, that might take longer, if you like, to re-engage and get back to normal. So that's where it's the most sophisticated kind of response. It acts like a break on overreacting with the fight-flight system. So it helped us be more modulated in our reactions. So for example, just say someone said something that we took offence to and then started to go into a fight-flight reaction, but someone else nearby or a friend said, no, no, wait a minute, they, they didn't mean it that way, or you'll be okay, or just take it easy, or wait a sec and help you settle down to a degree. The social engagement system can help regulate our reactions. So we're not just relying on our own response to, say, disrupt a fight-flight reaction, when if we're partway through fighting or fleeing, it's hard to, if you like, curb that or regulate that. And sometimes it can prevent us going into a fight-flight kind of mode if we're feeling the support of other people around, even if we're in a situation of some level of danger or threat. Well, it's so interesting that we have evolved a way, essentially, to connect with other people. It's almost as if we've, yeah, like evolved a system for connection biologically within us. That's one of the things that I find interesting about that. And it also, I suppose, gives context to that whole idea that humans are herd animals in a way. It's not as if our main response is this, you know, individual mobilization where it's us against the world. We do have that ability to rely on others socially. And one thing that came up for me about this was just that idea that sometimes, well, you know, you might have an issue and all it takes is for someone to sit with you 
And they don't need to give you all the answers or you don't necessarily have to figure everything out then and there. But it's even just the process of having someone sit and listen to you. You can feel the kind of positive emotions that are associated with that. And to me, that's what's interesting about this. It's that, I suppose, it makes it kind of biologically tangible, for lack of a better term. I suppose why we experience so many more of those positive emotions when we do, I suppose, you know, share the burden in an emotional sense with others around us. Yes, I think that's a huge point because, as you're saying, just sitting with someone, it just seems that much more powerful when you think of it as being part of this evolved social engagement system. But the person will still be, if you like, listening in a certain way. There'll be a certain kind of eye contact. There'll be gestures. There'll be a tone of voice which is affirming or supportive or encouraging or collaborative. So there's actually a lot happening, even if the other person is not trying to fix your problem, so to speak. If they're looking to just listen and just, if you like, validate your emotional experience. That's a term that we often use, the benefit of validation. You don't have to necessarily fix a situation, just understand something about how the other person feels and how they're reacting. And this helps explain why that can be so powerful. And I think it adds a balance to what we often talk about in psychology. Because I realised when I was hearing Stephen Porges describe this polyvagal model and the different kind of systems, that so much of psychology has an individual focus. Oh, use mindfulness techniques or use exposure for facing fears or develop problem-solving strategies. And I suppose at some level, I realised that implicitly... I would often think that a higher level of dealing with something is a very sophisticated problem-solving activity. You know, you solve a problem in a certain way or show courage and deal with a challenging situation or find a way through a situation. It might be like with a hero's journey or whatever. But it reminds us as well, even with the hero's journey that we've talked about, part of that is drawing on support, sometimes in the form of mentors or others, but it's a reminder to not just to have too individualistic a response to stress. A higher level of response is to draw on the social supports around us, to show compassion for others, to be supportive to others. That's the highest level of response to threat or danger rather than being able to figure it all out yourself. Like, sure, it's good to be able to be resourceful and find ways through things, but in the first instance, if we can deal with challenges, especially sustained challenges, Connecting with other people and drawing on mutual supports, that's the highest level, if you like, of dealing with something longer term. Well, it's interesting even the way that you describe that there in terms of, say, like highest level and uh, even the way before you described it as a hierarchy. Yet, for example, talking about the third system as a system of regulation, and we even say mentioned before that, you know, there's, there's some benefits to at times using some of the other systems, not necessarily always uh, relying on the social engagement system. So it suggests to me that there's an interplay there in terms of, like there might be times when, you know, we do need a little bit of mobilisation, as you say, whether it be for play or enthusiasm or other reasons beyond just responding to a threat in the most immediate sense. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit in terms of maybe what's the connection between the systems or the interplay Okay, and certainly there's a strong point that you're making there about there'll be different times where these systems have a particular benefit. For example, if you're crossing a street and then a car's coming up much faster than you realised, 
You're not looking to socially engage with the driver with a glance to encourage them to slow down. No, you jump out of the way. That, that's, a, that's a flight response. That's a sympathetic nervous system response. And there'll be other times where freezing, like if we're in a full-on life-threatening situation, like we're walking along and suddenly we realise the next step, there's a huge hole in the ground in front of us kind of thing. You're not just looking to engage with the people around you. You're looking to almost stop and freeze on the spot before you've even quite processed the fact that there's a big hole in front of you, so to speak. So our body is, and our eyes and our senses are scanning for danger the whole time automatically, and at times they will kick in before we're using, say, the social engagement system. But the idea is in the first instance, if we're facing sustained stress, like if we're feeling unduly challenged in a work situation, or we have a significant family conflict that we're facing, or we're facing a, a very significant problem that we're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by, then often in the first instance, the idea is there's an advantage maybe to look to draw on our supports, looking for maybe encouragement from others, looking to collaborate to deal with a family problem, for example. In dealing with the pandemic, for example, we'd look to maybe have also community-wide responses and also at a family level look to support each other, deal with that rather than every person for themselves. So in the first instance, we look at a social engagement kind of response to deal with stress, even using humour to deal with stress and worries. That's a way of, if you like, lightening some of the stress we might feel. Humour is a great stress management tool, but just say if something, if you like, disrupts that social engagement system. We don't feel that we can look on the support of the people around us, for example, in a domestic violence situation. Or just say we're in a situation where our main supports aren't available to us. We might be socially isolated in a particular situation. Then we're more at risk when one system breaks down to immediately default to the next system. So we'll go to a fight-flight response. And so just say... Again, with the pandemic, if people are cooped up at home, there have been stresses for a period of time, people are feeling a bit worn out and overwhelmed, we know that there is an increase in domestic violence and arguments in that situation. Something about the social engagement system and relationships might have broken down even temporarily, then automatically it'll tend to be a fight-flight response that comes more to the fore. And then just say, if that's not solving the problem, if people are trying to, say, forcefully avoid a situation or they've been getting angry to deal with a situation or they're trying to mobilise themselves by asserting themselves but too forcefully and that's not working, then it will tend to default to the next system, which is freeze-submit. And that can be like a depressive state where someone feels helpless or stuck or hopeless and not able to mobilise themselves so much. That's where this hierarchy will tend to come in. So again, looking at the contrast of the social engagement system and the sympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system is like a, an accelerator to mobilise us. So we're feeling stressed and then we might overreact, for example, with anger in a particular situation. Now, the social engagement system looks to act as a break. So temper our more forceful or unnecessarily reactive anxiety, if you like, but if that's not working so well, we tend to default to the next system. And then again, if our anxiety or anger reactions are not helping the situation, and often they'll be going too far if they last too long or they're too intense, then the person can end up feeling more helpless and hopeless, more that 
dorsal vagal response, if you like, more that immobilisation response. Well, it is so interesting to hear the way that you describe that there. And I suppose one of the things that really stands out to me is that if someone did have a disrupted social engagement system, they were always relying on that fight or flight or that mobilisation, just how exhausting that would be. And so in a tangible sense, you could see how someone would almost go to the next, I suppose, stage or or the next system, which is the, the more passive, almost just worn out, over it tired sluggish like to me that stands out as a real yeah i suppose example of how that would play out but yeah i wonder if you have any other examples in terms of maybe how that plays out in terms of the interplay between the systems all right now one thing i've mentioned more generally is we've had a number of episodes on dissociation and depersonalization and that's where dissociative responses it's often recognized that's not just the fight flight system but also the freeze submit system and we would have had different kinds of examples where people would have described that they were triggered by a certain situation and maybe reacted with anger or reacted with anxiety, but also people could describe that at times they had states of mind where they would have been experiencing amnesia for quite a period of time or with depersonalization, they're feeling numbed. That would be more the freeze-submit kind of response. So that's an example where if stress is prolonged then people are more likely to have those other reactions. And also we talked about in those episodes on dissociation, it's more likely for people to experience dissociative disorders or depersonalisation if they've been in past situations of repeated threat or danger, especially in childhood. So that might be, for example, if people experience physical or sexual abuse in their family or prolonged emotional abuse, we could understand how those kind of experiences disrupt the social engagement system. If in other ways people have learnt to distrust authority, for example, people might have fled a despotic government, and depending on what kind of supports people encountered on the way, if people have faced many threatening kind of situations and not received support from others, then they're more likely to be in that fight-flight mode, which is a situation where, for example, it's so important for refugees to find that in a host country, there's a lot that helps them to feel safe and socially engaged. Otherwise, they're much more likely to be in that fight-flight kind of mode or a more helpless kind of mode. Also, for people who have experienced past abuse and trauma, especially repeated trauma in childhood, especially if that was by caregivers, it's important to help build up people's experience of safety and for people to be socially engaged in different kind of ways, build up supportive relationships, which can take quite a period of time to build that up. And people can be prone to fight-flight reactions or being triggered or freeze-submit reactions like dissociative-type responses for a lengthy period of time. But I can give one specific example of how these systems might interact. And I'll give an example of a person who told me that he went on a holiday weekend with his family, with his wife and children. So this is a social engaged situation. This is where you know, it might be a pleasant weekend away. But at one point, he recognised he felt very panicky. And it took a while to figure out. It was even Sometime afterwards, days afterwards, he recognised why he was panicky. It was seeing water that reminded him of being on holidays earlier on, a particular camp spot with water, where for different reasons he encountered different types of bullying or harassment or felt unsafe in different ways. So it kind of triggered a memory. 
of previous holidays which had felt dangerous or unsafe. Now, being in this fight-flight mode, the fellow thought, but no, it's wrong for me to leave this weekend with my wife and children. I'll stay even if I'm feeling very anxious and triggered. But what happened afterwards is he went into more of a dissociative freeze-submit kind of response and had a very low mood, feeling somewhat helpless and numbed for many days afterwards. It was only after we met to trace back what kind of things had happened, had recognised that being on this weekend holiday, sure, a positive experience in many ways, likely to be positive with his family, but there were certain triggered reminders of past experiences, brought up the fight-flight response when that didn't solve things, partly because he didn't leave the situation, stayed in the situation but feeling very anxious, then more that dorsal vagal, that numbing freeze-submit response came out. So that's an example of how if one system isn't working, it tends to default to the next and then potentially to the next. And if we understand that, then it's not as if the person was foolish or an idiot or just had a rotten personality or something like that. It's just that these were different biologically-based systems of response to danger or threat. And when we understand that, the person has somewhat more chance of regrouping, hopefully with a degree of self-compassion or understanding. Because let's remember, self-compassion is a way we can apply the social engagement system with ourselves. To me, that story really suggests the importance of opening up to people. Because, you know, if someone's going through something like that on their own, then they only really do have access to the fight, flight and the freeze submit systems. Because, well, they're they're not able to tap into that social angle. And even, you know, as you said there, if they're not telling other people, it's likely that they're not applying the self-compassion to themselves in a non-judgmental way to feel comfortable bringing it up and that sort of thing. So to me, it really just does stress the need to not necessarily feel that you have to get to an answer with every conversation that you bring up with someone, but at the same time, just to let them know that you're going through something, it really does seem would give a tangible benefit. Yes, I think that's very important. And that's how many of us will experience our friends and family members is at times being supportive, understanding, comforting at times of stress. And that's so powerful. Like you talked about earlier on, just simply offering a listening ear can be so powerful. But when we think of it, going back to that example I mentioned with people who'd experienced chronic trauma, dissociative experiences, especially if it was associated with very harsh experiences in childhood, just think of what courage it would take for the person to learn to reach out to others, including potentially a therapist. And that's one thing, working as a therapist with people with chronic trauma or dissociative reactions, especially associated with repeated trauma in childhood, you recognise the level of courage someone is showing in coming along to therapy and the level of trust that they're looking to place in someone. And that's one of the most important things for therapists to recognise, how vulnerable people are allowing themselves to be. And that's where a whole lot of psychotherapy and how it's set up is to look to help give signals of safety, how to, how to reassure the person with the structure of therapy, with the room, how it's set up, certainly the interaction of the therapist and the client. That's also why we use systems of looking for feedback at the end of each session, how the person has found that session, to look to help things be on a certain kind of track. And I imagine part of it as well is even helping people to recognise the degree 
to which they're maybe relying on their fight or flight system, for example. People may not necessarily realise the degree to which they're not able to call upon their social engagement system. Is that part of it as well where people may not even realise the degree to which they've had a disruption in their social engagement system? Yes, I think that's a very important point and it reminds me of working with Vietnam veterans for a number of years, especially at the Repat Hospital in the early 90s when we were setting up the post-traumatic stress disorder program. And part of the reason for setting up that program is each week, one veteran after another would present at the team meetings that week and be acknowledging difficulties that they had with, say, depression, with anger, with alcohol, with feeling withdrawn from family members. It would be a whole range of problems that would come up again and again and again, and certainly sleep problems and anxiety reactions and panic reactions and maybe avoiding social situations, a lot of social anxiety. And there'd be all these problems that would be coming up. But what we weren't talking about in common is the vast majority of those veterans were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And so they'd had that condition for about 20 years with lots of intrusive thoughts, including about combat experience, lots of avoidance, meaning trying to block those thoughts out of their mind, and certainly hyperarousal, problems with irritability, concentration, sleep problems. And the important thing was to help acknowledge this experience that they'd had in common. Many of them had been in situations that were so unsafe they might have done a tour of duty for eight months or whatever. Each night when they went to sleep by a bush track, for example, they could have been at risk of being shot, uh, feeling unsafe. Even if they were in a ship in a harbour, there was a threat of attack in a certain kind of way. So people were in a theatre of war for a period of time. So there was that whole sense of danger the whole time and it meant that people were wired much of the time in what we call survival mode. When people are in a very dangerous situation in a prolonged way, there's an evolutionary survival potential, if you like, from being wired the whole time looking out for threat or danger. But it means that when people return to Australia, for example, and they might be meeting with people in a social situation, their body's still wired and looking for threat and danger. And so they're still prone to panicky kind of feelings and social anxiety and anger responses, especially because their social engagement system was compromised with Vietnam veterans often having been unpopular with the wider community. And so that massively compounded their problems because there was a lot of distrust that had developed and people felt that they weren't so supported by the community as people from previous wars perhaps had been. Many would go and, for example, live in the bush in the Otways, feeling some peace being away from other people. There's a clue that the social engagement system wasn't working so well. And one thing that changed a lot for many veterans is when there was a welcome home ceremony in Sydney in 1988. And then it was truly acknowledging on the part of the community how these people had made sacrifices for the wider community and there was an appreciation for what they'd done. And I think in Anzac days since, there'd be a lot more appreciation that way. Now, that might have helped to a great degree many veterans. But by the same token, after many years, many veterans had become more reactive, if you like, that social engagement system not working so well and being quick to respond to fight-flight reactions and more easily triggered in a certain way. So there's a reminder that at times it's important for the entire community to think of people who are vulnerable and look at how 
those people can feel supported, how they can be socially engaged, and that would include refugees, and dare I say it, it would also include people who are particularly distressed and feeling unsafe as a result of the pandemic, and maybe especially if people have somewhat limited social supports, but if people are in compromised positions for a long time, it's important that there's a wider community response as well. Well, it is so interesting to hear that. And one of the main things that comes to mind for me there is, for example, just the importance of, for example, Sorry Day for the Indigenous Australians. And even when we do an acknowledgement of country, it's not as if it's some symbolic gesture or it's tokenistic. In order to properly recognise someone as a person, you know, you have to recognise what's important to them. And for Indigenous Australians, their culture is so important to them. So it's beyond some box-ticking exercise where we can kind of pat ourselves on the back for it. It seems to me that it's an acknowledgement that we want to find a common ground. And being in Australia, that common ground is going to involve some acknowledgement to the Indigenous Australian culture. Yes, and I think that's a particularly good example for what we're talking about today because it's partly that notion of appreciating something about such a long-standing historical culture but also one that modelled an understanding of social engagement. Certainly a Western worldview can sometimes be somewhat individualistic and I think being open to learning the strengths of other cultures as well and I think Indigenous cultures, including Australian Aboriginal culture has a lot to teach us about how everybody is connected to everybody else. Absolutely. And it seems as well that, you know, from what we've spoken about today, you can't necessarily force that connection on other people because, you know, it would just result in more kind of mobilisation and butting heads that way. But I just want to go back to something that you said before as well, uh, talking about supporting people who have felt unsafe as a result of the pandemic, because I think it's an important one. And it's something that's really stood out to me uh, since going through what we've been talking about today and recognising that there are some people out there who've had a bit of a disruption to their social engagement system. And it reminds me of when I was walking uh, just around the tan in Melbourne the other day, Dad, and it was, it was a weekend and it was one of the days that there was a whole bunch of protesters heading into the city of Melbourne and, and there was someone there and they had a sign and it said, Freedom for All. And I remember looking at this sign and I remember thinking, I don't think they understand the contradiction in that sign in terms of, you know, there's a lot of complicated things going on at the moment. I'm, look, I'm not necessarily sure where I even sit on all of them to the end degree sort of thing. But at the same time, there's a real, I suppose, contrast in some ways between individual freedoms and collective freedoms. And it seems to me that there are some people out there who are really tending towards the side of individual freedoms. It's not necessarily something that we've seen in Australian culture. You know, we don't have a Bill of Rights or we don't have uh, the Declaration of Independence and stuff like the Americans do. So in our society, we have a little bit more of a collectivist culture in Australia. And what I thought, you know, freedom for all, this sign, I thought... Now, is that freedom for the doctors who are working in ICU? Is that freedom for the people who are immunocompromised and not feeling like they're able to go outside? Is that freedom for maybe people who are a little bit older and getting towards the end of their life and are robbed of social engagement, which is such a big thing for them? And it's sort of like it's this whole thing of, you know, collective versus individual freedom. But at the same time, I think what that person meant was 
in many ways, you know, the freedom to be mobilized. It was the freedom to, you know, act on my own volition and the freedom to be angry in this situation. And it was, you know, to not be told what to do. And to me, looking at all this sort of stuff, like it was such an example of someone who was in that fight and flight mode and they may not have even recognized the degree to which they weren't able to call upon a a level of social engagement but it was interesting to me this thing of you know freedom for all I'm so sure that that person would have believed that but at the same time you know this no you've got to give some to take some sort of thing and and I think they may not have realized the degree to which there's a, a social freedom which comes into things as well. Absolutely, and it just shows when you face a very stressful situation, a prolonged situation like the pandemic, that is a real challenge to all of us in every country in terms of that threat and even life threat, then that's going to tend to activate our autonomic systems in a range of different ways. But I think it's a very interesting example to think of in terms of the way many people are responding differently to the threats of the pandemic and, dare I say, our approaches to vaccines. And I think, again, polyvagal theory, when we look at these three different systems, gives us a clue of how we might go about that wide community threat and that ongoing challenge that we face where the first thing that might well help is a social engagement system. Now, this is pretty tricky because, like you're suggesting, there are trade-offs between the freedom people might have to go to a shop, for example, but the relative safety or risk for people working in hospitals with, say, increased numbers of people with COVID. There are trade-offs with this. So the pandemic poses a wicked problem for which there's no, if you like, freedom for all, meaning a wonderful solution for everybody. So what can we do? I think in the first instance, the most helpful responses are going to be socially engaged responses where together we collaborate around things like physical distancing, lockdowns, accepting that for a period of time, certainly, Vaccinations as a way of not only keeping ourselves safe, but also reducing risks to others. So these are things that Australia's actually done wonderfully well in these areas. It's about 90% of people double vaxxed around the country, I believe, at this point. Now, that's a remarkable response and how people have often, if you like, foregone certain kinds of individual freedoms to help the collective in different ways. I think that's the most socially engaged response in the first instance. Now, by the same token, that can be asking a lot of people and so there's a real challenge to be found by politicians and decision makers as to, for example, how long lockdowns go on for. Because if it's very, very prolonged and the level of social isolation that results from that, in addition, our social engagement systems are compromised by having to, if you like, wear masks. We haven't got the same cues as usual, not as much social contact. Our contact might be more by Zoom or phone than usual. But if it's pushed too hard in that direction, then people are likely to struggle more and more likely to be tipped into fight-flight kind of reactions. But by the same token, it would generally seem to me if people are engaging in that fight-flight reaction, it's not as sophisticated a response. And I'd have to say from my own experience and feedback from clients that I've seen, I think often people have found it more difficult to engage in that, well, social engagement system and, if you like, have some trust in vaccines if people have had negative experiences of authority in the past like a number of people who've experienced abusive situations in childhood, for example, I think are being asked to place even more trust or show 
more faith in that direction than others if they're asked to give up some of their individual freedoms. And so I think that when people have had their past trust compromised, it's more difficult to relate to that. But I think also it helps account for some of the reaction of people who have been protesting, if you like, sometimes viewing the wider public, who's generally very compliant with a degree of contempt. I think some people have had that response as though other people are just being passive, they're not prepared to speak up, it's a bit of a weak response. I think that's a misinterpretation. I think that's where sometimes people in the fight-flight mode, that sympathetic nervous system mode, are thinking other people are using the lizard response or the mouse in the mouth of the cat response and just being passive rather than seeing that the socially engaged group or the compliant group are actually choosing to a fair extent to go along with the conditions that there are to help for the greatest safety for all, if you like. But if people aren't so socially engaged at the time or they're distrustful of that, then they're more likely to see compliance as a kind of lizard-like passivity. But then again, I think that we get the situation where people who might be very much shying away from vaccines, some of those people are going to have phobic responses to the vaccine. So they will have that dorsal vagal response, the freeze kind of response. And I think we need to understand that a number of people who are choosing not to get vaccines, it's not just that they're trying to be antisocial. There'll be a proportion of people who are very fearful of getting a vaccine. I think we should have some kind of allowance in the long run without putting other people in the community at undue risk. But as more and more people are double vaxxed, then I think, well, hopefully there's some assistance for those people who do have a phobic response, but also it's important that those people who are phobic of vaccinations aren't just excluded from the wider community or the opportunity to attend a shopping centre or whatever in the long term, provided there are a very large number of people who are double-vaxxed with boosters, so to speak. Well, I think when you put it like that, like you can see how it happens and it's not to you know condone any any particular attitude in a certain way but I suppose just to almost take a broad view at it you know you can see how people could find themselves in that situation where they are very mobilized and they they have a, a distrust for you know essentially basically everyone around them on, on a certain level then it could be so hard to come to terms with you know, whether it be sort of putting something in their body or whatever, but it just, it just to me, I suppose, recontextualizes some of, you know, what's been going on in terms of, you know, it's not, it's not about bad people anywhere. It's just about different, different or it's just about different stress responses, really, and, and people's reactions to those stress responses. Yes, I think that's an important point. I think it's important not just to damn people who might be protesting or who might be wary of getting vaccines as just being antisocial. There might be more to it than that. And so I think if there are ways of engaging people who, whether they be questioning a community response in some way, at the first instance, at least look to listen to what people's concerns are and show that their concerns are being factored in in some way. This does not mean having to change rules to accommodate everybody who might be protesting. It doesn't mean that. Basically, our decision makers have to weigh up risk 
in different ways. And that's a very difficult role for them to have. Hopefully, they've got lots of support from people around them in their social engagement systems because what a difficult task that would be, the politicians, the senior medical staff making recommendations in the wicked problem of a pandemic. But I think showing some kind of understanding or some openness to understanding people's different reactions other than our own can only help in the long run because that's also part of allowing people to, if you like, rejoin our social system rather than just saying you're antisocial and just alienating people in the longer term. Well, I think that's such an important point in terms of not just alienating people because, you know, if someone's going to be in a fight or flight state, fighting with them is only going to cause them to, you know, fight back even more and further intensify that response. But I suppose one of the things that comes to mind for me, Dad, as well, is is just the, I suppose, involuntary nature of some of this stuff. And I remember hearing a story one time about a former Navy SEAL. And he was saying that even after he returned from war, he was at home and every single room that he was in, even if he'd be in a restaurant with friends or whatever, but he knew exactly how he could get out of that room as quickly as possible. And it was almost as if even though he was no longer in that state of, I suppose, imminent physical danger, his body had had learnt to respond in that way. And to me, after speaking about what we've spoken a little bit about today, it seems that he was in that constant state of mobilisation. It was as if he was always in that fight or flight response and his social engagement system had broken down a little bit. And so what I wonder then is what are some of the other disruptions to that social engagement system? We've spoken about today what can happen if it is disrupted, but what are some of the ways that it can be disrupted in the first place? Yes, well, that overlaps with post-traumatic stress disorder, if you like, where people get the intrusive thoughts, avoidance or trying to block out those thoughts or otherwise avoid certain situations and the hyper-arousal that comes with it. So when you mention that Navy SEAL... He was in what we call a state of survival mode functioning. So again, a state of mind that might have helped when in a theatre of war, scanning for danger, looking to flee danger in a certain way, feeling, again, hyper-aroused and ready to flee. So maybe higher heart rate and more vigilant. And so another example of that would be Vietnam War veterans who'd walk into a shopping centre and feel very uneasy and look up at escalators and vantage points around, being concerned that there might be someone with a weapon there. Or others who would describe that in a restaurant they need to sit with their back to the wall and being able to see the door so they could see any new threat that might come in. But in that situation, then they could maybe feel a little bit more relaxed to engage in conversation with other people because they felt they could scan the environment to an extent. Now, when these people learnt more about survival mode functioning and how that could help survival, that would help them make allowance for their, if you like, intrusive thoughts, looking around excessively for threat and the hyper-arousal, and people in time could look at ways of helping tone down or reduce the overactivity in the autonomic nervous system, that sympathetic fight-flight kind of response. And so there'd be things that people could do that we'll talk about later that can help settle some of those reactions. But for many people, they would still have a residue of a higher level of arousal or excitability But the more people understood it and used different strategies to, if you like, regulate their emotions using a calming parasympathetic system or also their social engagement system, so to speak, 
that might help temper more of that sympathetic nervous system response of the fight-flight. We might get on to a couple of those things that we can do very shortly, Dad, but before we do, I know there's something that is very relevant here uh, called autonomic reactivity because we were having a little bit of a chat about it off air and, and you are mentioning how it's not just about the initial event that someone goes through, but it's also how they respond to that event as well. And I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on that for us in terms of what is autonomic reactivity and where is it relevant to what we've been talking about today? Okay, now this is a special case, if you like, that relates to some of the themes of the last couple of podcast episodes, looking at CBT and looking at Albert Ellis's rational emotive therapy, where borrowing from the philosophy of the Stoic philosophers and Epictetus, the notion is it's not things that disturb us. People are not so disturbed by things, but by their view of them. So it's not just the situation itself that impacts on us. It's more our response to the situation. Now, the idea of autonomic reactivity is it's not just an adverse event. It's not just a potentially traumatic situation like a car accident or an assault or someone saying something threatening to us or abusing us or criticising us. Those kind of challenging situations in themselves do not cause our response A lot of it is to do with how we perceive the situation and how we perceive the situation will influence our level of reactivity. Now, naturally, if we're being shot at or if we've been assaulted repeatedly, naturally, that's going to tend to lead us to have a stronger fight-flight-freeze-submit reaction. That's very understandable. However, it's our reactivity itself over and above the original situation that might lead to things like PTSD symptoms and anxiety. So Stephen Porges had a good example of this. He looked at people responding to trauma reactions during the pandemic and he looked at PTSD symptoms and they did research looking at how much an adverse event, like a potentially traumatic event, would contribute to PTSD symptoms. And at first they found, well, if someone's experienced a traumatic event all right, I might correlate about 0.4. It's a strong correlation between the adverse event and the PTSD reaction. But if you accounted for the reactivity, if you like, so the event also causes the reactivity or leads to the reactivity, if you partialed out or, if you like, removed the effect of the autonomic system reactivity, then there was only a fairly weak correlation between the original event and the PTSD symptoms of only 0.14, a fairly weak correlation. So it's gone from a correlation of 0.4, a fairly strong correlation, to 0.14, a weak correlation. Well, look, apart from the numbers, it means not so much of the PTSD symptoms are explained by the adverse event, except in so far as that contributes to more reactivity, more of the fight, flight, freeze, submit kind of reactions. Now, what that means is if we can learn ways to dial down those kind of stress or anxiety reactions, if we can dial down those reactions, slowing our heart rate, perhaps slowing our breathing, reducing tension in our muscles, if we can find ways of reducing our arousal level and muscle tension, then that can moderate the impact of adverse events on our reactions. So that's where a whole lot of psychological therapy for trauma reactions And also anxiety generally and worry and to some extent depression is looking at reducing our autonomic reactivity. 
Well, it seems to me, like I almost think of this in you know, a bit of a metaphor of like, say, a couple of different roads and say the different pathways or the different systems, almost like different roads. And it seems to me that some sort of traumatic event, some adverse event can almost flick a switch which moves some of the traffic from, say, the social engagement road down into the, the mobilisation road, the fight or flight road. And then as more and more traffic comes through, with that switch being flicked, it all has to head off onto that middle road and head down the mobilisation road. But of course, with all that extra traffic, you've almost got to make the road a little bit bigger and suddenly it's got a couple of extra lanes and suddenly it's, it's almost the easier path to take. And so all the traffic's almost naturally diverting down there without even having to worry about the fact that they couldn't go on the first road in the first place. So it's almost as if in using that pathway, it kind of stretches in size, if that makes sense. And we, we further rely on it and almost ingrain that pathway as kind of like the default road to take, if that makes sense. I wonder if that's a little bit of a way to almost, oh, in very simple terms, explain maybe how, say, trauma can affect the pathways that we rely on. Well, if I follow what you're saying, I suppose it suggests that people can develop habits of responding to triggers in a certain way. And this can become more automatic and become more of a go-to kind of reaction, a fight-flight kind of reaction, when it would tend to lead to social anxiety and avoidance. It would tend to lead to excessive anger reactions, more frequent, more intense than necessary. So part of this is people getting more understanding of those kinds of fairly automatic reactions that they might have where they come from and recognise that there are alternatives. There are ways that people can either look to re-engage with their social engagement system, if you like, or reduce the activity in other ways of their autonomic nervous system to reduce their arousal level. Well, what are some of those things that people can do in terms of, you know, we've spoken about the idea of it being automatic and, and one of the things that stands out for me is that it would be hard to recognise at times when we have almost shifted from, from one pathway to another. So I wonder what can people do to encourage the use of the first pathway, the social engagement pathway? Okay, now this is where things that we would have talked about in the past to do with reducing arousal levels will help, or stress management techniques more generally. One of the classic ways is slow breathing. Slowing our breathing will stimulate the vagus nerve in ways that helps reduce our arousal level. Also, mindfulness exercises or meditation or yoga these are wonderful disciplines that have been developed in many different cultures, often associated with their religious practices, but even apart from that, to help regulate our emotions. They've got that way of, if you like, settling our autonomic nervous system built into them. There are also traditional techniques that make a difference, like, for example, singing or chanting will make a difference. Also, praying is a way that can help regulate our feelings. But then we can think of also what tends to happen in psychotherapy. In the first instance, therapy involves an activation of our social engagement system because, well, by definition, it involves a relationship, a social relationship between the therapist and the client. There's a whole lot about how the setting is arranged, about how people communicate, how the sessions are structured, but part of it will be tone of voice, eye contact, all of those things will be in operation partly to use the therapist and client's social engagement system to, if you like, help the person further regulate their reactions. For example, learning 
positive or calming self-talk or affirmations. People learning more about self-compassion and compassion-focused exercises or using gratitude exercises as a kind of calming strategy as well. There are additional things like, for example, bilateral stimulation we've talked about in the past. There are also biofeedback techniques that are used that can help people reduce their heart rate. So a whole range of strategies when we talk about arousal management, these are things that help activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and relaxation response. Well, it stands out to me, Dad, how many, I suppose, existing stress management techniques seem to mainly deal with the fight or flight system. But, you know, even as you're describing that there, you know, one of the things to me that really stands out is, for example, going to the MCG and shouting and yelling with, uh, with a whole bunch of strangers who are, who are all of a sudden your best friends at the final siren when your team wins sort of thing. Or, or even in England, you know, they're all chanting along, watching the soccer And it seems to me that anything that we can do that almost taps into that kind of social connection, that intangible social connection, well, it almost seems that we can kind of go back up the hierarchy, if that makes sense. If there is a disruption there, we can, yeah, somehow tap into, yeah, some some, whether it be social dynamics that do exist. Yes, and what a wonderful example to finish on before a holiday break when, as you said, we are going to be able to go and see the cricket at the MCG. A wonderful example of being part of that social engagement system, what, 50,000 plus people there at the MCG, plus the cheering that can go with it, the cheering part of that enthusiasm and mobilisation, if you like, the energy that goes with the sympathetic nervous system, combining that social engagement and that enjoyment together, well, Let's hope we do a fair bit of cheering at the MCG. We're yet to see how that's going to turn out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and well, Dad, thanks so much for, for chatting with me about all this today. It's, it's been absolutely fascinating. And, and I even look back at my own pandemic experience, really, and in many ways it, it mirrors some of this sort of stuff. In terms of, I remember at the start of the pandemic, it was, you know, Zoom calls for days and trivia nights on Zoom with everyone. And, and then it was almost like after that, it was almost like the fight or flight mobilisation. It was, you know, watching the press conferences every day, bacon stuff, just almost doing anything you can to try and stay occupied. And then I was almost just, you get over that. And it was almost just this exhaustion thing. And to me, one of the things that really stands out about that is, you know, it almost seems strange at first why everything didn't just return to normal after the pandemic. And I've spoken to other friends about this too. It's not as if you were able to just snap back to how things were exactly before. And I think part of that is because we went through a bit of this process of, you know, we didn't have our social supports there. And and then maybe we relied on our fight or flight system a little bit more than we otherwise would have then maybe after a while that got pretty tiring and so maybe uh, we were you know beaten into submission for lack of a better term but to me it gives a bit more context to that saying as well but we found ourselves submitting to things a little bit more than we'd maybe be used to and having a little bit less energy than we're used to and and so that just suggests to me let's you know take the pressure off a little bit in terms of getting things back quickly I think we can look at some of this sort of stuff in terms of looking at what does energize us what does get us back into the state of relying on the social engagement system and on the on some of the more healthy responses to stress in this situation yes and as you say that it reminds me that when it boils down to it two years of a wicked problem that we're all facing everywhere around the world when it comes to a crunch really we are all in it together well dad very much looking forward to a bit of time off over Christmas. We're very much going to enjoy getting into some turkey and ham. And I hope 
everyone out there does as well and you all enjoy your Christmases with your family and we're very much looking forward to next year where we've got few exciting things in store next year actually we'll uh, have a few more interviews we'll actually be doing a few more episodes next year as well so then we'll be back about mid to late jan next year and uh very much looking forward to it but before then hope you have a great break yeah thanks so much for tuning in this year yes wishing everyone a very merry christmas and hopefully many positive things happening in the new year and look forward to rejoining you in the second half of january rowan and in the meantime let's hope we get to do a bit of cheering